Uh, well, good morning. I'd like to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Alton, and I'm your pastor. Uh, it is it is good to be back. Uh, as most of you know, my wife Chris and I were uh, graciously given a sabbatical, uh, and uh, we've been gone for the last four months. Um, but God, in His kindness, allowed for these four months to be just a wonderful time of rest. Uh, we were grateful for the opportunity to be away. Uh, that we might draw near to the Lord and to each other. Um, Chris has still uh, had to work during that time, but we were able to still get some um, house projects done, and we were able to be in study. We were able to, to visit other churches and even just take a trip here and there. And um, I did do some ministry. Um, I know I'm bad. Uh, and uh, But I had the opportunity to, to speak at a couple of retreats that were scheduled in advance, um, but praise God that it was a joy and not a burden, uh, and it didn't take away from that time of rest. Um, so all that to say, we, we feel refreshed. Uh, our marriage um, has been strengthened, and we just feel that our affections for Christ have grown uh, during this time. And uh, my heart is just uh, full of thankfulness for, for those of you, especially who served, uh, and in particular the, the elders, and whose labor of love enabled for us uh, to have a sabbatical, and, and we know that a number of you took on a greater burden in our absence, and uh, we are just indebted to you, um, and we just thank you for that. Um, as well, we, we want to just share our appreciation for uh, just the many encouragements, um, for even the gifts that some of you uh, gave to us, and, and just for your prayers. Um, God was faithful, and the sabbatical was a huge blessing, um, but it's good to be home, and it really is, and we really miss you guys. Uh, we were eager to come back and to rejoin this church family and to continue to do the Lord's work. And so we're excited for what the Lord has in store um, for us and also for this church um, for this next season. And um, so just a little report. Um, hopefully I'll get to share a little bit more at our next church family meeting, um, but just uh, wanting uh, just to thank you uh, again just, just for... Um, uh, just, just allowing for us to be able to take some time off. And so, um, one last thing, I, I've been asked to make a plug for retreat. And so, it's not too late to sign up if you haven't signed up yet. Um, and here's the thing, if you can't commit to going for the entire weekend, here's an option for you to consider. At least, think about coming for the day. And whether it's Saturday or Sunday, uh, there's a cheaper rate for that. And, and again, it's not too far. The retreat site is located uh, in uh, and around Santa Cruz. And so I really want to encourage those of you, especially who are a part of this church, uh, to try to make it up there if you can. Uh, and just to value that time that we have together and that we don't have very often at all. That we might get to know this church family more. That we might grow in our fellowship and, and really deepen our faith together as a body of Christ. And so... Um, want to encourage our church family, but I also want to just give a, a, a really uh, a word for those who are newer here. Um, I, I look across this room, and during the last four months, I, I see a handful of unfamiliar faces, and I'm thankful that the Lord has brought you to us. Um, but maybe you're not feeling just plugged in just yet, um, and you're maybe checking out this church. Some of you are deciding whether you want to make this church your home, and I want to encourage you to see this as being an opportunity uh, to really get to know the people here uh, that you might be able to form relationships with the church family and, and even just for yourself personally, uh, even if you don't commit to this church, uh, that this would really be a time for you to 
retreat away from the distractions, uh, from the busyness, from the routine of life, uh, that you might draw near to the Lord uh, with us together. And so, um, selfishly, I, I'd love to be able to have you there as well so that I might get to know some of you better. Um, but all that to say that the form is in the back and uh, just sign up uh, and talk with um, Archie or Stephen Chang, Matt, or even myself, uh, and, and we'll hopefully make arrangements for you to go. And so just my, my little plug for you, okay? Um, well, I've been waiting to say this for a while, but please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. It's hard to believe, but for almost two years, we've been going through the book of Mark. Um, because it's been a while, uh, let me set the context for you. Mark was introducing to the Roman world in which he wrote to a type of literature that was previously unknown to them. He composes to them an account on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God, in his sovereign plan, he appointed four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to write and to record events as they had experienced them or had it recounted to them regarding who this Jesus of Nazareth was and what he did. And in a culture where history was passed on orally for the first time, the life and words and deeds of Jesus Christ were transcribed in written form. And so that's what we have in our Bibles before us. And Mark has written these things down for us concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. But here's what's important to understand. Mark writes to give us not merely history, not merely a biography, but something greater. He writes to give us a proclamation of good news. Mark's purpose is found in the opening line of his book. What is it? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't miss that. And though subtle, that statement reveals that Mark writes not to give us information about Jesus Christ. No, he writes to be persuasive. So that those who read this record might come to believe Jesus as whom? The Son of God. Verse 1. That is Mark's purpose. To announce to you. To convince you. To persuade you to know who Jesus of Nazareth is. See, this isn't a biography. This is a gospel. So that Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John haven't left us then with the option of walking away and saying, well, Jesus was a great teacher, or Jesus was a good man who lived, or Jesus was was a martyr who died for his beliefs. No, Mark is saying, I'm writing this to you to tell you that Jesus was much more, that in fact, he is the son of God who lived and died for your sins. And you must come to terms with that truth and believe upon him as Lord or reject him And face him as judge one day. See, every person is brought before a response. A decision regarding who Jesus is when we come before the word of God. No one can be indifferent. See, he hasn't left us with that option. And so this is what we find here in this account of Mark chapter 5. 
And in this passage, we will come across a very captivating and powerful story. But Mark wants to have Jesus Christ front and center in this picture. That we might come to see that indeed he truly is the Son of God. And so that's a little bit of the context of what we have here. And so let's look at this story. Uh, But more importantly, let us look at Christ. And if you're not there, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. And let me read all 20 verses for us. And follow along as I read. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we do come before your word, we ask for your help. Lord, we are finite creatures. We are utterly dependent upon you. So, Lord, we need your grace. Minister, Lord, to each and every heart here. Teach us from your word. And change us, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. What we've read here uh, is such an engaging story. And there's so much that it teaches us. But there are specifically three truths 
that I want to give under three headings that I want to highlight for us in this account. If you're taking notes, the first heading that I want to give you is confrontation. We see the confrontation of demons here in this story. Now, if you remember, our Lord and his disciples had set out the evening before to cross the Sea of Galilee. And they would find themselves in the midst of a great storm. Mark tells us in verse 37 of the chapter before, the storm arose and waves were breaking into the boat and they were being tossed up and down by the tempest. And these disciples, Mark tells us, feared for their lives. These experienced fishermen who had been in the seas all of their lives feared. And so it tells us just how great a storm it was. The Lord would awaken from his sleep And with a simple word, he would calm the violent storms on the sea. And so we arrive to the next morning, and that's where we are in Mark 5. It's the morning after what was already an eventful evening. And it was about to be just as eventful this morning. Jesus and his disciples, they arrive on the eastern shore of the Gentile region of the Gerasenes. And Mark tells us that just as Jesus steps out of the boat, verse 2, immediately there's an encounter with a demon-possessed man. A man that Mark says has an unclean spirit. There's a confrontation that will take place between this demoniac, as he's called, and of Jesus. Now, Let me say this, for many in our contemporary culture, Satan is nothing more than a myth, a personification of evil, maybe a symbol that comes from primitive and superstitious cultures and from a different time. But the Bible tells us that Satan is real, that there are evil, personal, spiritual beings at work within a supernatural realm. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, where he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul tells us, just as all the scripture tells us, that there's a battle that is unseen, and yet is taking place between good and evil, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between God and Satan and his demons. And where God will be at work, there will Satan and his demons be also to work against our Lord. For he is the great adversary. Satan's activities are always directed against God and his work and his people and his kingdom. See, he is the formidable enemy that those who don't believe must believe and they must know about that we might stand guard against him. Now, at the same time, there have been a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to the demonic. We need both a balanced and a biblical understanding when it comes to demons. Now, time doesn't permit me to, to go through an extensive study on demonology this morning. But let me just say a few things regarding this encounter between Jesus and the demonic that I hope will give us a better understanding of this area. 
What we know from this story is that, is that demonic possession does happen, even today. Scripture shows on several occasions that demons operate in a way where they can inhabit a person and have control over their entire being, their personality, their thoughts, their actions. Demons can have complete dominion over their victim. And that person will have no will, no ability, no strength to resist whatever they want from them and for them. And that's what we find with this man here in Mark 5. Now, in each instance, true, genuine, biblical, demonic possession is overt. It is clear. It is unmistakably demonic where a victim will have no ability to resist the demon's will. But what's important to understand is this, is that demonic possession is rare. It was rare in biblical times, and it's rare today. And it is a mistake to think that evil spirits and forces only operate in these obvious ways, because get this, demons prefer anonymity. The Bible tells us that Satan is disguised as an angel of light. They want to be secretive in what they do. They don't want you to know that they're really there. They rather work covertly than overtly. Because that's how they're effective. So here's the thing. While demonic possession happens, demons are just as active when it doesn't happen. Scripture tells us that Satan is currently deceiving the nations. He is influencing governments. He is the ruler of the world, the God of this age. He is the one blinding the eyes of unbelievers. So that one of the ways that he is at work is he is preventing unbelievers to accept the truth of the gospel. He's preventing them to trust in Jesus Christ. He deters them to believe God's word and instead leads people astray to believe in something false, which is basically anything that is not the gospel or the word of God. So that's why we can say that Satan is active even now. That if you are here and you will, and, and your heart is hardened to what is being preached and you are being distracted by other things, that you are somehow indifferent to what is being said. Satan is blinding you to the truth of the gospel. For in fact, he is the factor in all unbelief in Christ. But what we also know is that against the believer, he is at work as well. He wages warfare. He accuses. He sows doubt. He tempts us to sin. He incites persecution. He prevents service. He promotes division and disunity within the body of Christ. And even in this worship service, again, as it relates to the word of God, if you lack that desire for the word, if you are indifferent, if you don't really care about what's what's being said here, Satan, what he's doing is he is snatching the seed from the soil of your heart so that you don't receive the word of God, that you might be changed. So that Satan is a factor in all sin, and we can attribute 
some degree of demonic influence in nearly all evil and every sin out there today. But at the same time, we bear a responsibility despite Satan's role. You notice the emphasis in Scripture is not on the influence of demons, but on our sin, your sin, not the devil's sin. Right? Our sin, sin that remains in every one of us, even believers. So that we need to accept responsibility for the sin that you and I commit against God and not be so quick to shift blame for our disobedience onto some demonic force. Right? People always want to say, the devil made me do it. Right? Whenever they sin, they mess up, or they do something wrong, right? it's the devil. This happens far too often. But realize that this has been the excuse from the very beginning. Right? In Genesis 3, God says, Adam, why did you eat the fruit? This woman you gave me, okay, it's, it's her fault. Okay, Eve, why did you eat the fruit? Well, the serpent that you gave me, you know, it's, it's, it, it just goes on and on. It always goes back right to Satan. And yet the Lord doesn't let us get away with that. He has us bear responsibility while acknowledging that demons are at work. So demonic possession of unbelievers was only one manifestation of satanic activity. And up to this time in Mark, it has always been around. But what's interesting is it was never so prevalent, never so active, never so overt in biblical history. But that changed with the coming of Jesus. The kingdom of darkness was trying desperately to oppose our Lord and his ministry. And it makes sense that where the kingdom of God would be set up, there would be indications that it was being established with resistance from the evil one. So that's what we have here with this demoniac in Mark 5. So that's a little backdrop, and we learn a little bit more about what this demonic possession entails. Mark, he he gives a description of this demonized man. And what we come across is simply heartbreaking. One commentator says this description before us is the most lamentable of stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. And Mark's language here is raw. It's as if the shadow of death falls upon the scene. And every description that is given draws attention to this man's pitiful condition. Verse 3 tells us, if you're following along, how bizarre that this man was. For he came from the tombs. He lived among the dead. And it allowed him to be isolated from others and inevitably had to be isolated from others. Because Mark tells us that no one could bind him, not even with a chain or shackles. The people sought to chain him for their protection. But his strength was so extraordinary and could only be explained by demonic influence that he was able to break the chains and shackles apart. 
all attempts to restrain him were futile. And Mark reiterates in verse 4 with stronger language that no one could subdue him. In some of your translations, no one could tame him. Think about that. That is a term that you would use for a wild beast. You don't normally have to tame a person. And yet Mark says that he couldn't be tamed or subdued. He is that out of control that he is reduced to an animal. Luke adds, this man is naked and he lives like a monster. He is withdrawn from society in the mountains and tombs. And yet while being withdrawn and separated from people, the people nevertheless could hear him because it says in verse 5, that he was crying out. He was yelling. He shouts day and night, all the time. He screams as he is being tormented by these demons. And he so hates himself. He so loathes what he becomes. It says in verse 5 that he cuts himself with stones. That he's engaged with, in self-mutilation. He's trying to end his life. Here's a man that has lost all semblance of his humanity. So much so that when Jesus asked this demoniac for his name, what does he say? Verse 9, my name is what? Legion. This man has no name. He gives a number instead. A Roman legion was an army that numbered up to 6,000. What's in a name? Everything. It's who you are. It's your identity. This man's condition is so pathetic. He resembled nothing of a man anymore. And is absolutely suffering at the hands of these demons. That his suffering and the effects of it is what now defined him. And the question that comes up is, how does someone get into this sort of predicament? But what factors contribute to demonic possession? What did he do? And really the answer is we're not sure. Mark doesn't tell us, nor do the other gospel writers. What we do know is that those who are believers in Christ are indwelt by the Spirit and are protected by God. But those who are unbelievers and who are without Christ are then under the rule of Satan and and the influence of demons and therefore susceptible to demonic influence. Now, what the entry points are, we can't be sure, but we know elsewhere from Scripture that sin is always a precursor for demonic influence. One possible factor is idolatry. The Old Testament draws a link between demons and idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17 says this, They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. So idolatry could be one factor. Another would be involvement with the occult. Elsewhere in Ephesians 4, again, it suggests that sin gives some sort of foothold of some kind to demonic influence. 
So those are all possible factors. But somehow, in this man's life, and somewhere along the dark path, he would be overtaken by these demons, enslaved, tormented. This was simply hell for this man. There is no other way to describe it. He has a taste of what hell is like, so much so that he wants to end his existence. He is hopeless. Until Mark tells us, one day, when he looked upon the water, there in a distance, he sees a boat. And from this boat, the Lord Jesus Christ would emerge. And as Jesus sets foot on that shore, everything would change that day. We return to the narrative in in verse 6 that Mark began in verse 2. And we see that the focus of this story shifts from the demoniac to the hero, to Christ. From this confrontation, we see, secondly, a demonstration. Namely, a demonstration of Jesus' power and authority. We're told in verse 6 that this demon-possessed man sees Jesus from afar, and what he does is he runs to him, and he falls down before him. And he cries out and says this in verse 7. With a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now the demons are aware of who this is. They have no question of Jesus' identity. And in fact, they give him a title. They call him by the title, the Son of the Most High. As they are on their knees, what they do is they confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, whatever means of spiritual recognition, understand that it wasn't the man who recognized Jesus. It was the demon who did. And he is crushed to the ground immediately upon knowing who this was. The demoniac bows, and he falls prostrate at the feet of Jesus. He says, what business do you have with me, Jesus Son of the Most High. Why does he ask that question? Well, first of all, he knows who he is. He is the Son of the Most High. And the thing is, all demons do. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, the demon in the synagogue says, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Later on in chapter 3, verse 11, it says that all the unclean spirits, the demons, cried out that you are the Son of God. And then we have this statement here in Mark 5. See, the demons know who he is. But what they don't understand is this, is why are you here now? Matthew adds in his gospel that this demoniac said, why are you here before the time? It's so interesting that The demons, they know their theology. 
They know who Christ is, that he is the son of the living God. And in many ways, the demons have better theology than do the crowds and even the disciples at that time. Because so often we come across the Gospels and we read of the disciples who just didn't get it. They failed to grasp who Christ is and why he came and repeatedly why he needed to die. And yet of all people, check, of all things, we have a demon with sound doctrine who recognizes the identity, the authority, and the mission of Christ more than men and women do. But here's the thing. It's one thing to know that he is Lord. And it is another to submit to him as Lord. These demons knew who Jesus was. But they refused to worship and honor him as he rightfully deserves. Now I want to tell you this. It doesn't mean anything. If you're here this morning and you say that you know Christ, or even if you say you believe in Him, if there is no worship of God in your life, if there is no obedience, if there is no change that follows as a result of your salvation, it doesn't mean anything. And really what it means is that you are in the same place as these demons here. They knew who Jesus was, and they knew what his coming also meant. That when the Son of God would appear on earth, their destruction would be imminent. Because we are told that Christ comes to bind the strong man. He comes to throw the demons into the lake of fire forever. 1 John 3 tells us this explicitly in verse 8. That whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But here's the thing. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That is why the Lord would come. And the demons knew this. And yet, how do they respond? It's interesting. In fear, they ask Are you here now to destroy us? Is this the time of our destruction? Will it happen at this moment? That's what they're asking. And they plead with Jesus. We find here in Mark 5 that I adjure you by God, do not torment me at this moment. They they beg Jesus not to torture them here and before the appointed time. They know judgment will come one day. And yet notice this. Rather than plead for mercy, they plead for delay. Rather than plead for mercy, they plead for delay. And that is the mistake that men and women cannot make. Knowing who Jesus is and that he has made provision for our sin. And yet he will also judge those who do not repent. Let us not plead for delay so that we can continue with our sin and live our lives however way we want apart from God. Let us not plead for delay. 
Let us plead for mercy. Mercy that God is so eager to give those who would simply ask. Yet these demons refused to ask. For they desired to continue in their evil ways. Consequently, the Lord would not tolerate this. And he would show forth his power and authority over them as a response. Look at what happens next. We're told in verse 10, this demoniac, this legion of 6,000 demons begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And in verse 12, they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. This encounter with the demoniac heads in such a bizarre direction. The demons don't want to leave the area. So they plead with Jesus that he would send them to the pigs nearby. And then notice this. It says in verse 13 that Jesus gave them what? Permission. That is an absolute statement of authority. And it speaks to this truth that demons cannot do anything apart from the will of God. For he is sovereign over everything of heavens and of the earth. He sits on his throne and he rules the universe. Our Lord is the one who will act as he pleases. So that when Jesus saw fit, and only when he saw fit, he would grant these demons the request. And so he does so. We're told that he would cast these demons into the herd of some 2,000 pigs on the hillside. And what happens next is, is hard to comprehend. Because upon entering the pigs, a stampede takes place. You try to imagine all of this. A herd of 2,000 pigs rush down to a steep bank and they go into the sea and they all drown themselves. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know how long it took. But tens and hundreds at a time until 2,000 are dead. What we understand is when these demons could not destroy the man in whom they live, they immediately destroyed the herd of wine in which they entered. And it answers the question often asked about this part of the story, why do they go into the pigs? And the reason being is satanic work always tends to the ultimate destruction of God's creation, and especially men and women who are made in the image of God. The devil's intent is always upon destruction. And this is what they tried to do with this man when they enslaved him. When they tried to erase the image of God within and drive him to try to destroy his own self. But we praise God 
Because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. For Jesus would defeat these demons. And he would save this man. This story is a picture of the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Why this account is found in the Gospels is to once again present to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that the Lord has power that belongs only to God. And up to this point in Mark's Gospel, we've seen glimpses of this power. Power over disease and sickness. Power over winds and the waves. And now we see power over demons. The forces of hell. Power over evil. What we are reminded of is that no matter the strength and the power and the authority of the devil, we must be reminded that he is merely a creature like everything else that God has created in this universe. He is limited. He is finite. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. There is no dualism in our faith where the devil is equal and power to God. There aren't these two equal and opposing forces. There's no symmetrical force of good and evil. No, evil forces are subject to the authority and the will of God, who is sovereign and he will do as he pleases. And I've said this before, that Martin Luther said that the devil is ultimately God's devil. He can only do what God would allow and permit of him. So that at any moment, God can say no to Satan and he can do nothing. God can say you are no more and Satan would be dead. Just like that. God can end him at any time. And the reason that that Satan and his minions have breath and their being is because God allows it. But we are told that one day at that appointed time, God will no longer allow for him to rule. And Satan will be no more. And he and his demons will be thrown into the lake of fire. That is the power of our Lord. And what hope this should give us in this world, shouldn't it? Because we know, we look out in this world, that underlying all that represents death in this world, behind the senseless killings of children at school, behind the shooting rampages when the innocent lose their lives, behind the hurting of children in unimaginable ways, behind the abortion agenda, behind suicides, behind ISIS and Islamic extremists and the beheadings and behind the rapes and behind the bombings, behind all of these evils is the activity of the evil one himself, the one who is a liar the one who is the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. And it is into this dark world that Jesus, he comes as a light. 
as a king to destroy the works of the devil, to upend his kingdom and inaugurate his kingdom so that one day all will be restored and all that is wrong will be made right and that all will be made at peace where there will be no more tears, when there will be no more suffering, when there will be no more pain and no more sorrow, and the lion and the lamb will lie together under the sovereign rule of the righteous and good and kind king who is Jesus Christ. When I see so much of the evil in this world, it's passages such as these in front of us, it gives me hope and makes me long for that day when Jesus will come again. And he will. This Jesus who is sovereign, who is powerful and has all authority, he will come back and he will complete what he's begun to defeat Satan. Let us look lastly at a transformation that is found here. In this story, we see a transformation of the the, uh, demoniac. After this incident with the pigs, Mark records for us the the reaction of the locals. Uh, Read with me in verse 14, or follow along. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And what they would see would be inconceivable. In verse 15, and when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, the same man they saw who was unable to be tamed, who could not be bound, who was naked, who had lost his mind, it says they saw him sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. What a contrast they saw. And what the people saw were the effects of the redeeming touch of Christ. They saw that Jesus had done what no one else could do. He rescued a man from the ravages of hell. They saw something that they never in their wildest dreams expected to see. And yet what was their response? They were afraid. This had been the common reaction that we find in the Gospels to the presence of God. When you come before someone that is powerful and someone that you can't control, it makes you afraid. And you notice that they were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the demons. And it happens often in Scripture that when the unholy are in the presence of the Holy One, the Almighty God, the Sovereign One, their response is fear. And so we read that in fear, in verse 17, would come some of the saddest words found in the Bible. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Who would have expected this turn in the story? Wouldn't you expect a a revival? 
a ceremony to, to honor a hero. Maybe even a celebration of some sort for this man who lived in such a hopeless state and is now transformed. Wouldn't you expect there to be some sort of belief upon Christ because of his works? And no, they were afraid. And they begged him to leave. These are sobering words. And yet the amazing thing is that Jesus agrees. And so we're told that Jesus is getting back onto the boat. And in verse 18, this is what happens. The former demoniac finds Jesus. And he says, and because of what you've done for me, I want to be with you. I want to go with you. I want to follow you. You can imagine the scene. He is among the Lord and his disciples, and he's made his way to find him. And he begs Jesus, I want to come too. And you wouldn't expect what our Lord says in response. He says, you can't go with me. It makes no sense. Up to this point, the demons ask, can we go to the pigs? And Jesus says, yes. The locals ask, can you go from here? And Jesus says, yes. This man says, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no. Why? Because our Lord had a special commission for this man. He says to him in verse 19 that he has a purpose for him. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Our Lord, he leaves him as a missionary. He changes this man so that he might proclaim Jesus and share of who he is and what he has done and of his great mercy available to all who would repent and believe. And as this man is being told these things, he obeyed and he took Jesus' command to heart. And it says in verse 20, And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This man was sent to be a witness. To tell people what had happened to him and what Jesus had done. And we know what a story he had to tell of how he once was, but how Jesus freed him and changed him to who he now is. And it is no wonder that as he went about in all the cities, it says that everyone marveled at what they heard. In fact, he was so effective the next time that Jesus will come back into this region. In Mark chapter 7, he needed to perform a miracle to feed so many that had come likely as a result of this man's witness. The seed that this man had planted as he shared the good news of Jesus Christ would bear such great fruit in this way that by the time that Jesus would return to Decapolis, many are flocking to him. What a transformation of a life. And that the Lord would use for his purposes. 
See, this story is about Christ. It is all about him. It is about how great that he is. But it is also about us. This demonized man is a picture of everyone who has ever been saved by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This story illustrates the nature of our salvation. That while we are not all demonized, all of us have a condition as it's described in Ephesians 2, where we were enslaved to sin. That we were under the influence of Satan and we were ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And like this man, we were unable to free ourselves from our sin and from the wrath of God to come. That was our condition, every one of us, as sinners. But the hope that we have was a hope that this demoniac had. That he sees Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, as the God-man, he comes. He comes to rescue us. And he would come into this world to die on the cross, and there he would take the wrath of God that you and I were to have taken. And yet the Lord, he would die there in our place, but he would demonstrate his great power once again that when he died, he rose on the third day. And he frees those who would trust in him and would simply ask and plead for mercy. And in the same way as those who have been saved and redeemed and changed like this man, we are all commissioned as well for this great task. In the same way he commissions this man, Jesus commissions all those who have come to believe and are saved to go and to preach the gospel. That is our calling here. That is why the Lord has not taken us all to heaven upon our salvation. And the thing is, we may not all have a dramatic testimony like this man, but we have the same story to tell that Jesus instructs us to tell. Our Lord says to us, as he says to this man, what? He says, go home to your friends. Go to your family. Go to your co-workers. Go to your neighbors. Go to every creature and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That is the story that we need to tell. And we call for those who are sinners to respond, to, to repent and believe upon Christ as we have. And as those who have experienced his saving work, the Lord gives us this great privilege to be a witness to the great God that he is. I know you believe that. Let us go and testify to that truth of the great God that we have come to know and love and worship. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ and Lord, his work on the cross, the power of sin and Satan and hell can be forever broken. To all those who come to Christ and confess sin and embrace him as Savior, that deliverance comes. And we are all here as living testimonies to the power of your deliverance upon us. And Lord, and how you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and now to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so, Lord, we, we ask that those who have not called upon your mercy, who are still enslaved in their sin, and there are those who have not yet trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord, would they know with great confidence that there is hope and mercy to be found in the gospel? Lord, give them faith to believe. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, for the wonderful God that you are. Remind us constantly of that. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And Lord, we worship you because you, Lord, are worthy of all our praise. And we do want to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to you. That is our heart's cry that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.